Grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is indeed a pleasure and an honor to be here with you tonight. Once again, we have that dynamic teacher coming back to us, none other than Archbishop Dennis Miles Golfin. If you have missed the first two, please look into uh, on YouTube, is out there on Facebook. You gotta hear the teaching. It'll, it will move you to a whole nother level of studying. But right now we're gonna open up with prayer and then I'm gonna turn it over to the Archbishop. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your awesomeness this time of the year, God, that your gratefulness, God, in your awesomeness, God, we love you. We thank you for what you're about to do. Now, God, we ask you to touch our instructor tonight. Bless him from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. Father, bless the people that are going to listen tonight. And we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Welcome tonight for all you who are still chiming in. We want to keep to our schedule and really start one time and begin to look at where we are with this class. So we're, um, we're thanking the Lord for your due diligence and coming to be a part of what we're doing with this class. This is our session three on discovering 21st century leadership shifts. One of the things that I may mention to in the first session was talking about why people need to be a Christian before we show them how to be a Christian. I was on a website today which was um, extremely interesting for statistics. Many of you are probably familiar with George Bonner and his surveys that go out and survey people and get a sense of where they are. There's another uh, site that's called the State of Theology dot com the state of theology got calm this site is sponsored by Ligonier Ministries which is the uh, teaching ministry of R.C. Spool if you're not familiar with his teaching you already get familiar with R.C. Spool um, one of my um, my mentors and who I love uh, is teaching me listening to him for years and um, been to a few of his events and seminars and workshops but he is a uh, very articulate in explaining and, and um, laying out what the scriptures have to say. But um, it is interesting, you're talking about back to basics, where people are, the findings are extremely interesting in where we are and what we see. So uh, somebody by the name of Carl Pipes did an article about the 2020 State of Theology study that you'll find on that stateoftheology.com. Uh, people were classified, they, they interviewed, by the way, 3,000 people who were Christians. Um, Lifeway did the research, and they interviewed 3,000 Americans and asked them a number of questions about God, Christian ethics, and religion in general. The study found that one in five Americans, 19%, are considered evangelical by belief according to the LifeWay Research and National Association of Evangelicals definition. Here are people who are classified from this study. The Bible is the highest authority of what I believe. It is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that can remove the penalty of sin. 
And lastly, those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gifts of eternal salvation. Here's what was interesting. You're talking about back to basics. Most were confused over the Trinity. <laughs> Almost all evangelicals by belief, 96%, say that they believe in the classic Christian doctrine of the Trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet nearly two-thirds, 65%, say Jesus is the first and greatest created by God, a view championed by the ancient, um, they call it heretic, heretic Arius, and condemned by both councils of Nicaea and Constantinople. Now, let me say that in terms of the doctrines of the Godhead, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get in. People might believe in a doctrine, but they can't explain it. That's interesting. So three in t 10 evangelicals by belief say Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Wow. There also some confusion over the nature and work of the Holy Spirit. Nearly half, 40%, 46% say the Holy Spirit is a force rather than a person. And almost two in 10, 18%, believe the Holy Spirit can tell them to do something which is forbidden in the Bible. You want to tell me we don't need to go back to basics? We've got a long way to go to get back to the roots of Christianity and the very essentials of Christianity. When I start this particular class on a monthly basis, starting in 2021, we're going to look at the essentials of the faith and how they work. But let's cover this chart again, identifying the church. Last, last session, we talked about this. I'm going to use this as my segue to move into where I want to move tonight. We talked about first the declaration of the church, and I think that's extremely important where we are to deal with this declaration. Let me get back here for a minute. To the declaration of the church was extremely important here. The declaration of the church was upon the statement that Peter made to Jesus, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's extremely important. And so we, we look at that idea. And then the establishment of the church through the Holy Spirit is an extremely powerful segue to where we're going because the, the establishment of the church comes with go back to Jerusalem and stay there until you be endured with power. That's how the church was established. So the book of Acts are really the acts of the Holy Spirit, even though we call it the acts of the apostles, which really only cover the background of Peter and Paul, who are the two main characters of the book of Acts. But what we see is the Holy Spirit going through various uh, segues to establish the outpouring of the Holy Spirit now on all flesh. Remember the limited outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament were two, through selected and special individuals. Now with the coming of the establishment of Jesus working our redemption, we now have the establishment of the Holy Spirit being poured out on everybody without discrimination and living in them, dwelling in them, something that was impossible in the Old Testament. And then we get to the church itself where we talk about the management of the church. Uh, it's built upon, according to Ephesians 2.19, the apostles and the prophet. 
let me say something here about prophets and apostles again. I want to say that prophets are there to tell us the future, and let me add this one, as God sees it, not as man see it, not what you expect, not what you want, but it is looking at the future, and I use this term a lot, from the divine viewpoint. So the church, the management of the church, has these individuals who God put in leadership as prophets and apostles who manage the church. Um, first century has a great emphasis on apostles. When we move out of the first centuries, we call that the post-apostolic age. There is not much signs and wonders and miracles going on as the church goes into the second century, but many who were teachers, considered teachers of the faith. So as Paul went in 2 Timothy 2 and 2, what you have received passed on to faithful men. He in terms passes it on to Titus and Timothy. What is interesting about the, the apostolic anointing in the first century is that the only person we see established in churches is a second level apostle who is Paul. None of the first level apostles established churches that we read about in our canonical New Testament. What we um, see it that when they went out to carry the message, because their mission was to carry the gospel into all the world. That's what Jesus commissioned them to do. As they went out and we find historical records of where these apostles went and what they established, there were churches that were named for their work or established because of their teaching, but we don't see any particular church that they particular um, started. All we have is these Pauline churches and what we call our canonical scripture. And Paul is seen in this such as one who establishes. I'm making that point because we're getting to a major issue that's very important and talking about Paul. So when we identify the church, we're identified by declaration. This church is made by declaration. Um, this idea of ecclesia, uh, meeting in a public square, the Lord has made his public declaration that I will build my church, my assembly. I build it on the truth, and the gates of hell shall not prevail upon it. I will establish this new identity by the power of the Holy Spirit, because when I go up, he descends down. So the descending of the Holy Spirit comes in the fact that Jesus goes up, and then he sends back, and because he promised them another comforter, one who was going to stand alongside them. And, and then we have the management of the church. The management of the church is the hand of the body of Christ because the head has already been taken care of in the declaration. Yet we find in the management, people are, are fighting over who is in charge of the church. When you're just the manager, not the king or the ruler. We've already got a declared king because according to Matthews 28 and 16, when Jesus got ready to go up, the script text says that all power is given into his hands in heaven and in earth. He's already God, so it's already been given to him in heaven. But now that he's become the second Adam, all power is given to him in the earth. So he is, uh, has all power. He is the head of the church. The Bible explicitly shares that. I don't know why in management we all go over who's in charge of the church. Uh, the establishment of the church is established through Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.19. 
and it's built upon the management of God's future outlay of the church's intent and the apostles who know the timing of his intent. Well, that being said, let's move into this picture of these three P's that I established for you. Pattern, principle, and purpose. Remember, and I, and I have to use the children of Israel in the wilderness because this is where we really get our pattern from. We, we see, we get our pattern. God moves them across the Red Sea. The first thing he does is take them to the Sinai where he then wants to steal this pattern in them. So the first thing he does is build a house of worship. It is interesting that he builds a tabernacle before he gives them the law. And that's an important thing to look at. So with the pattern of the tabernacle, we learn about worship, praise, and thanksgiving. We do a pattern that takes us into worship, that causes us to praise, that makes us thankful unto God. We really don't get the idea of the praise and thanksgiving as much until the temple is built because it's David that takes us in the hymn book of the Psalms to show us how we need to give thanks to God and praise him all the time. But our worship picture is seen here in a pattern. Worship involves what you hear, what you feel, and what you see. Old Testament worship had two of those elements, what we hear and what we feel. There was no sight in worship in the Old Testament. In fact, God didn't intend for them to see him in the Old Testament. He just wanted them to perceive him. So when we get to the principle, the requirements, and principle has two uh, points to it. God writes the law that he's given. He now is going to set them up as a model for the rest of the world. Um, because I've, I've moved away from the fact that when we look at the world, we come from creation to it being fallen. In Genesis 3, the world fallen, because through Adam, according to Romans 5, all have been born into sin through Adam, so we gain the sin nature through the one who brought it in. And then Jesus comes to give us the God nature, because he doesn't come with the seed of Adam. He has the seed of the Holy Spirit. And we're in the Christmas season. The miracle of the Christmas season is that from Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman would bruise Satan's head. Now, I know you know your biology. Women have eggs. Men have seeds. But the seed of man could not be planted in Jesus or else he would have been just like the first Adam. He would have had the sin nature. His DNA would have been through the first Adam. Adam and his sin nature would have been passed to him so that he would not have that sin nature, nature but be now set to be the new Adam he had to be born through the seed of a woman in fact his Gabriel tells Mary when she asks us how can these things be he says don't you understand that which is conceived in you has been conceived in you by the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is um made this possible and caused us to look at it from the standpoint of here that we can get. So we move from uh, principle to purpose. Wait a minute, let me stop at principle one more time because the requirements 
involved in practicing what the law gave. According to Galatians 3, the law was our schoolmaster because God gave the law to show them and amplify sin. You have to read Galatians 3 to see this, that the law was never really to make them perfect or to bring them to a perfected state with the law. Romans 7 also points this out. The law was good and holy. There was nothing wrong with what God wrote with his finger and that he came down the mountain with stones, but they could not keep it. They could not practice. Every principle in scripture is linked with practice. And so there are people who come become experts on principle, but they never practice what they are teaching. And so we make celebrity out of messengers and we nullify the message that we should be practicing. I guess I better say that again. We make celebrities out of the messengers and we never solidify the message that should be practiced. The one that's reclaiming the principles should be the first partaker in doing what they do. We live in a society now where leaders, secular leaders and religious leaders say one thing and do another. They make requirements of us, but they don't practice the requirements that they make for us. And so, but we somehow excuse them because that makes them human like us instead of seeing that this is not how it should run. So we move from pattern, here's the pattern of worship. Now we get to these requirements. Our problems, and I'll get the purpose in a minute, but our problems, and I say this a lot, we make monuments out of movements. The pattern was to be practiced. The laws, the feast day, the rituals, the holy days was a pattern, but the pattern is taking us somewhere. It is taking us somewhere. And then we move to the principle of the laws that's given. God, God let, me, let me give you a bombshell right here. I think it's very important. The law was not given to the world. The law was given to Israel. Exodus chapter 20, it was given to a nation. Now, in saying that, let me say this. Israel was called out through Abraham. He was called to get up among the kindreds. What I need to do is I need to create a model nation that would then be the example to evangelize the world. So Israel was really intended to be the model in the Old Testament. This was to be the model. And this model was supposed to show how God wanted his people to live. I pulled you out in the wilderness. I gave you a pattern of worship. Exodus chapter 25, you build the tabernacle according to this pattern. I'm going to teach you what worship is, and then I'm going to give you some requirements that are in worship, these principles, and I'll give you things to follow, which will prove to you as a man, no matter how much law you get, you can't live holy. Um, Romans 8 and 3 says for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. It was a weakness of the flesh because men couldn't meet the requirements. But Israel was set up as a nation that was pulled out from all the other nations to be the model for what all other nations would be. But because we start making monuments out of the pattern and the principle, you wind up 
making yourself exclusive because you had something that nobody else had instead of making yourself inclusive. Let me bring you into what I learned. Instead, Israel became a separatist nation instead of a nation that was to model what God has. Now, we can't understand all of this until we actually come to the New Testament because God's purpose is really revealed in the new. The early is our blueprint so we can see that it, that's why we look at the Old Testament. We pull our canon together. Uh, the Old Testament, we get the pattern and the principle, the pattern and the principle, the pattern and the principle. We don't get to the revelation, the inspiration, the illumination until we get to the purpose. Well, the purpose is revealed in the New Testament because he already declared in both Ezekiel and in Jeremiah that I'm not going to put, I'm going to do a new thing. Isaiah says he's going to do a new thing. God says, I'm, I'm going to move away from the pattern and principle because you all have made it a religion. I wanted to make it spirituality. But you took the pattern and turned it into a religion. You took the principle and made it a yoke around people's neck. And then you start demanding people to do what you weren't doing. Jesus says this to the, to the Pharisees. He said, you make clean the outside of the cup. But inside, you pull a dead man's bones. So we got a shadow of things in the Old Testament. I gave you Hebrews 10 before. You need to read the entire chapter. Uh, the law was a shadow of good things to come. So all we had, we could hear from God. We could sense his presence in the kabod, his glory, pattern, principle, pattern, principle. That's all we kept doing, pattern, principle. That's all we could see. That's all that was coming about was pattern and principle. Pattern and principle. And we were missing the whole good thing of what's going on because we were missing the pattern because we were really messing up what we were doing with this pattern. So we didn't see pattern principle. We got the pattern and some of us have become expert worshipers professional worshipers, we got the pattern down pat. But we thought the pattern was the purpose, which it wasn't. And then we got the principles down. People can quote scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, and they can get you down with the requirements that are not being practiced. But they never really get to what was the purpose, because they made the pattern the purpose. They made the principles the law. Yet the requirements were never practiced. I love Malachi when he says, if I'm your father, where's my honor? And so we, we get this whole requirement in the book of Malachi, in and out the Old Testament, that there's a prophet that needs to come because I need to do my future intent. So the Old Testament closes with Elijah, who is to come. He is the model prophet. Uh, why Elijah? Why not Isaiah with all the writings we have to hear? Why not Jeremiah? Why not Ezekiel? Why Elijah? Because Elijah tests on something that many of us don't understand. It's not how smart you are. It's not how brilliant you are. It's not even how far you see. It's whether or not you touch the heart of God. And there was something about Elijah that we can only compare him to Enoch because these are two people who did not experience death. 
The Bible says that Enoch was not because God took him. But he had walked with God 300 years. I submit to you that Elijah's cave experience put him in another epiphany with God. And from that point, he walked in an area with God that caused God to come to me. Remember Hebrews 11, 6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. Man, I'm slowing up here, but I, I've got to move along. So let me give you the right pattern that happens here. Let's go clockwise. Let's start with promise. Because I'm, I'm going to insert two more P's here that, that's so important. Because if you don't understand that the promise came before the pattern, you make the pattern the most important thing. Let me get back here. It is the promise. He promised. Genesis 3.16 is the first promise recorded in Scripture. Unto the woman, her seed I give unto you. You're going to take your seed and bruise the servant's head. Then the, the promise is given to Abraham. I'm going to bless them that bless them. You are the curse them that curse you. I'm making a promise. I'm going to make you great. I'm, I'm going to make you to have greatness. And to your seed. Oh, I love I wish I, I, I'm going to take a minute to go into Galatians 3. Turn with me to Galatians 3 because it is here that Paul, in his knowledge of understanding the mystery of what's going on, he begins to show that if you understand that the promises in Galatians 3.16, you need to add that to your 3.16s, John 3.16, 1 Timothy 3.16, look at Galatians 3.16. I'm reading out of the NIV. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scriptures does not say, and to seeds, to his many children. Seeds, you know, all of us who are more than one child, we're fathers, we got a lot of children, so we got a lot of seeds. But he said it wasn't given, wasn't spoken to Abraham, but to his seed. Remember, we, we go back to Genesis 3.15, was the seed of the woman. Meaning, many people. But to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. Paul, Paul's, it, it, Galatians 3 is so good because he not only raises the issue, he explains the issue. He, he says that when the promise was spoken to Abraham, it, it was given to his seed, not the descendants of Abraham, not the descendants of Isaac or Jacob, but this one seed that was to come, one person who is Christ. Verse 17, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later. So we have the promise, but the pattern and the principle were introduced 430 years after the promise was given. So the first thing to remember is that you have a promise on your life before you even go in the pattern. Let's not make the pattern the purpose because the promise was given before the pattern was set out, but I got to get you to see something. The promise is what you heard. The pattern is what you practice. So we get the principle and pattern that we practice. The law introduced for and 30 years later, verse 17, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and do away with the promise. For if the inheritance, verse 18, depend on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. 
but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? Verse 19. What was the purpose of giving, taking his finger and writing all these commands and things on tables of stone and we idealized them and we made them a monument? What was the purpose? Verse 19. It was added because of transgressions until the seed, capital S, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put in effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. I'm going to get to the oneness in a few minutes, because that's extremely in uh... So verse 21, he continues his argument. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises? No. The, the promise is there. It is the seed that has to come, that the pattern is going to pattern so we can then see through the pattern who the seed's going to be, but we got our eyes on the pattern because we made it a religion, and we think that if we just follow the pattern, that's going to make us holy. And then, here we go to the principle, which is only meant to amplify your sin, to show you that even with the principle and you practicing the pattern, you still don't understand the promise. So I've got to take the principle, show you how you magnify it, and then I move to the provision, which is Jesus Christ coming to redeem us from our sins. In the provision becomes the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about that in some later back to basics because we miss this whole emphasis of the Holy Spirit coming in. With the provision, we can move to the purpose because God promised never to leave us. He created a pattern that we could follow that will help clear up our vision. You gotta think of the pattern and the and the promise. The pattern is the principle as getting your eyes clean for the promise. So you, you if you wear glasses, you understand about keeping your glasses clean. Sometimes I look and, and my eyes get a little cloudy and blurry, and it's because I hadn't taken the time to wipe my glasses clean. And when I clean them with my cleaning cloth and I put them back on. It's like I'm seeing things for the first time. I couldn't believe how clearly I can see when I clean my glasses. Well, in the spirit, you see clearly the more holy you become. You clean your spiritual lens. That's called illumination. And the scriptures start illuminating. Look at this cycle. And it's running around the throne. This is the throne of God, the demon. It's running around the throne. Uh, so we got the promise, the pattern, the principle, the provision, and then we'll get to the purpose that runs around the throne. Ah, my time is going. I don't have time. If we're going to get back to basics, again, we've got to reflect on our history. What does that mean? Think about where you've been. Think about, too, in terms of where you've been. Think of your history as a Christian, not your religious experience, your history. God's always trying to talk to you. But he talks to you out of your problems, out of your situations. Uh, reflect, reflect on your history. I reflect on my history quite a bit. I reflect on my history because I need to know what God is doing for, with me and through me. I've had a long journey. 
I'm approaching my sixth decade in the ministry in a couple years. And as I reflect back, there are lessons I hope I learn, there are mistakes I hope I don't repeat, and as an example, I hope I've been effective. Reflect on your history. Realign your energy. The Bible says, write the vision down, make it plain. Describe, start writing some things down. Write, write, make yourself a spiritual journey. Realign your energy. Start writing, shopping this down. Start talking about your movie list. Just sit down and write the thoughts God has, has put in your spirit. I have a journal called Wisdom Bites, and I put all my, as the Lord give me insights early in the morning, I just put random statements down. And I'm doing a collection of them. I do them on the computer now. They're just probably sentences, sometimes paragraphs of random statements. But I go back and look at them, and they start coming together. And then I can expand on the little notes I have. So I realign my energy to put various notes and things that God is striking in my spirit. Sometimes in the car, I just cut my recorder on, thoughts be scrambling my head so fast, and I start talking so I can have that tape to listen to later. I listened to a tape I did three months ago. I forgot to, to keep recording and listen to it. I couldn't believe what I had said. Yeah, sometimes you got to get excited about your own illuminations and, and be surprised at what Lord God puts in your spirit at a time you, you couldn't even realize. Last week, I talked about the refocus of your ministry work. I want to go back to two scriptures that I left with that, but the main one I'm going to go back to is Mark, Mark 6.30. This is for all of you that are so busy in ministry. Some people are so busy they can't even take the time to come to a study like this. Mark 6 and 30 says, the apostles gathered around Jesus. Remember, Jesus has sent them out. He, he empowered them. He commissioned them to go out to heal the sick, to cast out demons. They gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done. And so, and all that they had taught. They went out. They, they followed the example of Jesus. Verse 31, then because so many people were coming and going, they were busy with ministry. They didn't even have a chance to eat. Jesus, he says to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. One thing this pandemic should be teaching you is just like you taking the time with the pattern to purify your sanctuary, to purify your restrooms, to purify uh, everything that is material around you. Sound like them cleaning out. Moses sprinkled blood over all the furniture in the tabernacle to purify. Now that we purified the sanctuary, now that you got a pattern, first of the year ought to be different. Well, I know many of you have fasts for the first of the year, but you really don't even know what a fast is. A fast is about you taking a rest, spending some time with God. A sabbatical rest. It isn't just not eating and then going about your regular tasks. Along with fasting comes isolation. If you can't isolate, 
you, you lost the purpose of the fast. You just had a good diet because you got to isolate. Now, I know it out there in time, and you have to look at the, the, the quality of what you do and not the quantity of what you do. And maybe we can't take a whole week and fast. We can't go out in the wilderness and go 40 days from society because we've got other responsibilities. But you have to pick and choose how your fasting is going to relate into a rest. Because first of all, if you stop eating, you're going to be weak. You're going to lose energy. You can't be energized and not fuel yourself. That's when the devil comes to you in the middle of your fast. Anyway, Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights, according to Matthew's chapter 4. Afterwards, the text says he hungered. The devil came to him at the end of his fast. Not the beginning. He was in the wilderness. And when he was at his weakest point, that's when the devil came. Fasting is meant to starve the body, feed the spirit. Starve the body, feed the spirit. When you constantly eat and not taking time to meditate and rest, you're feeding the body, but you're starving the spirit. So fast is good, but it means more than just not eating. It's a time for you to rest. Your greatest times with God is going to be the times that you're in isolation. He's in the secret place of the Most High is going to abide under the shadow of the All Right Mighty. The concept of rest has three components. The Lord rested in creation. Six days he worked, seven days he created. Jesus rested, brought us into redemption rest. It is finished. He finished all of the confusion and chaotic to bring us into a redemptive rest. And then the writer of Hebrews says there remaineth a rest for the people of God, a kingdom rest. And we come into a kingdom where God wipes all tears from our eyes. Most I have these inner woven. Because the creation deals with the Sabbath rest, the Sabbath. We have to get into a Sabbath rest. Redemption also talks about rest. We've got to celebrate the fact that, that God is not just the creator, but he's also the redeemer. What he created, he will redeem. All of this is to bring us into a rest. So now we are connecting several components to getting back to basics. We've got to rest. We've got to follow a pattern because we had a promise. We've got to move to the principle and start doing what we say and saying what we're doing. Be an example. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. We've got to move to the fact that we get a redemption rest because we're no longer under condemnation about who we are and where we're at because in creation, we've fallen. In redemption, we get back up. So Romans 8 and 1, there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. So redemption takes away my condemnation because I failed the Creator, but I regained in the Jesus Christ my redemptive rights. And so I am a candidate to finally move into my kingdom rest. And in my kingdom rest, God's going to wipe all tears from my eyes. 
That'll be my final rest in glory. All of this relates, relates to a mystery. I don't know how much I can get in this little bit of time about mystery. I'll probably just um, go through it as small as I can because we're going to have to talk about this more. And when I talk about the oneness of God, I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm not talking about how we camp ourselves and whether or not God is three or God is one. I'm talking about there's a oneness in Scripture that we miss. And I'm not talking about a miracle oneness. This mystery of the oneness of God, the centrality of the throne, is powerful. The oneness of God refers to the singleness of God. That there is only one God and that there are no other gods before him or after him. Isaiah 43 and 10, that's monotheistic teaching. He is only one God. Therefore, this singleness status of God never changes. It never changes in his character or in his attributes. That's why when you look at this star and you look at this one and look at this figure over and over again, you see this cluster. You even see the star of David that's in here, kind of Jewish thing, and you see the brilliance of the glory. That's what it's supposed to represent, the cabal that's coming around, that all of that relates to the oneness of God, his character, his attributes, and mankind. Look. He made mankind male and female so that the male and the female, this is what he says, this is how he created man. He broke him up so they could become one. That's a mystery. That a man would leave father and mother, cling to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Paul also does this in religion when he talks about the Gentiles and the and the Jews that God had made through, through the redemptive death of Jesus Christ of one new man. Paul really labors on this oneness. And I'm going to talk about it in a minute. That everything, so, so Jesus, when he's praying his high priestly prayer in John 17, he gets us back to the oneness. And I'm not talking about unity. I'm talking about oneness. Unity is one thing, but oneness is another. So when we talk about oneness, he says, Father, I want to pray that you make them one, even as we are one. Let's get back to oneness. I need these disciples, if anything else, they need to become one in spirit, like we are. We've got to get this oneness together. So, so Paul, when he begins to talk about the oneness, he, he says in, the, in Ephesians 4, where there is one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all and in all. There's a transcendent nature of God that must be established. So here it is. I'm going to put you on a journey, and I need you to study Ephesians 3. But study it for the mystery that's here. We're going to talk about God's purpose, God's intent. Paul lays it out in Ephesians chapter 3. So I outlined the chapter for you so you could get it. But first of all, you got to see the revelation of the mystery. Ephesians 3, 1 through 7, Paul explains the revelation of the mystery. What he's, what he's been sharing is something that God had in him from the foundation of the world, but he did not make it known to anybody before he made it known to him. The purpose of the mystery, he gives us in Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 13. And the celebration of the mystery 
is Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. I love that part because the revelation of the mystery is important. It's, Ephesians is a good book to study on the mystery of, of what we're going to see here and how it relates. So the whole chapter, and I implore you to take this model, this chart here, and just read it or what you're going to understand about mystery in the next few slides. Look at this model, because here is where God's purpose and God's intent is. So what then is a mystery? If, if Paul is now telling us that things must be come about, what is a mystery? A mystery is not to be confused with a paradox, which involves a logical contradiction. And that's not a mystery. A mystery is not even like these mystery books where we come to the conclusion. Look. A mystery goes beyond reason, but it's not against reason. Mm. It goes beyond what I can normally comprehend, but it's not against my comprehension. There's no contradiction, yet we lack total comprehension. I gave you a hint in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he says the natural man doesn't know the things of the spirit because they're spiritually discerned. So the mystery then is something that God must place in you. It's a revelation. It's not nothing you can study. It's not nothing that you can get through books or how bright you are. It goes beyond reason, but it's not against reason. Right, let's get some other things about mystery before I conclude. A mystery is not something that can be attained by unaided human reason. In other words, God's got to show this to you. Paul declares this in the first part of that outline I gave you. He's declaring something that was given to him that wasn't given to anybody else on the face of the earth. A mystery is owned only by specific divine revelation. In the first session, we talked about natural revelation and special revelation. So it, you can't get this mystery unless you get it by divine revelation. So mysteries are not the subject of natural theology, but only of revealed theology. Uh, we can go through systematic theology, we can go to great theology, we can get natural theology, we can know all of the ologies until we blew in the head, but we will understand the mysteries of God unless God puts it in your spirit through the power of the Holy Spirit. John 10 and 10, I have come that you might have a life but that you might have it more abundantly. Jesus came to help us discover new life. A life that's not a biological life, but a life that is a spiritual life, getting the back to where Adam was. It is interesting that he creates everything in Genesis 1, and then he creates a garden east of Eden and puts the man in the garden east of Eden. We got some, some geographical understanding of where the garden was in Genesis chapter 2 because there were four rivers that ran through the garden. And we still have uh, an idea of two of those rivers today. The Nile River and the Euphrates River are still around. The other two rivers are not. So we can get a kind of picture where what geographical vicinity the garden was. You might be following me and begin to understand why Canaan is so important in biblical history. It was why God, it was the real estate that God chose to rest his glory. 
And so Israel coming back in to the homeland in that Canaanite region, everything always kept revolving around. Abraham receives this promise. He goes around and come back. Moses received the law on the same series set of mountains. And the mountains are named based on the geographical location that we in. So, so Sinai becomes Mount Hebron, depending on what direction. Well, I don't have time to deal with that. Here's another characteristic of a mystery, is that while we know that both elements making up the mystery are true and ultimately fit together, nevertheless they do not know how they are compatible. Mysteries do not call for answers, but insights. If you don't learn anything else tonight, there are some things that just don't fit, but they do fit. In fact, in Ephesians 4.16, he said the whole body fitly framed together. Mysteries do not call for answers, so you can't solve them, a biblical mystery. Now, we read mystery books, we see mystery stories, we want to solve it because we think it's a puzzle to be solved. But biblical mysteries do not call for answers, they call for insights. Finally, a mystery is distinguished from a problem. A problem has a solution. A mystery is the object of meditation. A problem calls for extensive knowledge. A mystery for intensive consecration. Concentration. In other words, you got to spend some alone time with God. Paul's greatest understandings of the mysteries he got was when he was in solitary. But we're so busy trying to solve, collaborate, problem solving. We want to know the answer to everything. Yet Paul summed up 1 Corinthians 13 and 12 by saying we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Finally, Paul talks about three mysteries, which we keep trying to solve and we think we are intelligent enough to understand. 1 Timothy 3.16, he talks about the mystery of godliness. It is a mystery. Well, I just finished. And, and we keep thinking we can understand the God here, what we talk about it as oneness or trinity. But we've already learned that a mystery has no solution. So what we keep trying to explain is the mystery. Paul said the mystery of Godliness is great. The more we trying to explain it, the more complicated it gets. You have to be in energizing your spirit. How is God God? I don't know. But the mystery of Godness is great. That God was manifested in the flesh. That's the incarnation. Believe on in the world. Seen of angels. That's why they're shouting at this Christmas season. Glory to God in the highest and in earth. Peace with will toward men. A traumatic pregnancy brought forth a baby that angels had already recognized as God in human flesh. And for the first time in the eternity of what we see in time, angels are now glimpsing what God looked like. Paul also talks about the mystery of the church. We covered that. God's original intent was that now through the church, He's going to show the manifold wisdom of God 
to all of those fallen spirits and angels that have fallen. I'm going to show you, you didn't understand, because what is man that you're mindful of? And you didn't understand what was going on. And then Paul talks in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 7 of the mystery of iniquity. What is the mystery of iniquity? It is a mystery. Why does God allow evil? It's a mystery. Uh, there's an old song that says, we're always tossed and driven by the dreadful seas of time. But the song goes on and says, but we'll understand it better by and by. I have a solution that by and by it won't even matter. We'll just be glad to be in its presence. But the God is a mystery. The church is a mystery. And the mystery of iniquity. Why is God allowed to do what he's doing? Well, Psalm 2 says he was sitting in heaven's last. It seems like sometimes that the devil just doing Headache? No, God's got this all figured out. Uh, I read this story a long time ago. Some of you may have heard me tell of a little boy who was just talking. You're going to get it. He was reading the book. His mother came by. He, the boy kept saying, you're going to get it. You're going to get it. And uh, she said, what's going on? What are you talking about? He said, well, the, the villain in the story is just on all kinds of things to the hero. But I went to the back of the book, and I saw the hero was victorious. So now as I read the book, I just keep telling the villain, you're going to get it. Well, in this mystery, I've gone to the back of the book. And I saw that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We need to get back to basics. Bishop Slater, I don't know I kind of went through there, but we'll cover this a little more next week and some other things. But I, I want us to get two things out of this I want you to understand. The mystery and the oneness. Because I kind of touched on both. There's a thread throughout the Bible of God trying to bring everything together back to one. So the oneness of God has to do with understanding his mystery. And, and the mystery is there because we get these five Ps that I brought you to. I've been giving you th three Ps for the last two weeks. But tonight I'm giving you five Ps. Promise, pattern, principle, provision, and family purpose. But it's a mystery. Okay, Bishop. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you again, Bishop Goffin, for taking us a little further into the mysteries of God and things about nature. Listen, saints, listen, we're going to look in again for next week when we get to the conclusion, I believe, of this series of what he is teaching. Um, let's go forward. Also, we want to remind everybody, if you want to be a blessing to Archbishop Goffin, please feel free. His um, cash app should be put up on the screen momentarily. And so we must be had so be blessed the man of God. The scripture says, muzzle not the ox that treadeth upon the ground. Be a blessing to the man of God tonight and all that he is teaching. Until the next one, so we'll be prepared for what's yet to come. Next one, I believe we're going to start off. We're going to hit the, uh, the pavement running. We're going to go forward and continue on where we started, where we left off, okay? Thank Bishop Slater, let me, let me mention, as uh, if you have any questions, just put it in the chat section, and Bishop Slater will 
recognize you and Archbishop Slater recognize you and, um, and addressed your questions to me or your comments. We are going to continue this in the new year. We're going to continue it once a month. But I wanted to get these four Mondays in so we could do it. Is, um, it is a free will offering. We want you to give because you want to give. You don't have to give, don't worry. I'm giving freely. Freely we receive, freely we give. So the things are, are possible and things going forward in the blessings of the Lord. But I do want to mention also that the tapes are available. You get an email from us telling you where the tapes are linked at. They're on YouTube. I have a, a YouTube channel called Kingdom Governors. If you subscribe to that YouTube channel, Kingdom Governors, you'll be able to be notified whenever we update or upload tapes. But this series, Back to Basics, is in a playlist in the YouTube channel. And in that playlist, we look for the Lord to bless us and do some things. Any comments or questions, Bishop Slater? Have any, I don't have anything yet. Anybody have any questions that we can address? We still have a couple minutes. Can you repeat the channel? Kingdom Governors. Yes, the YouTube channel is called Kingdom Governors. 